it's a really profound experience when you're someone who thinks I have to control everything about my life. I have to be on top of everything. I have to predict all the things that could happen. I have to remember all the bad choices I've made, the bad things that happen so that they don't happen again. When you just observe that breath breathing itself, something just shifts. You know, you just go, oh, my body can do that on its own. And it's just this little release of going, oh, that's one thing I don't have to worry about. You know, I don't have to be on top of this. I don't have to control this. And that one little recognition or shift can lead to many, many more. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. My guest today is mindfulness researcher and clinical psychologist Nicholas Van Dam. Nicholas is the director of the new Contemplative Studies Center at the University of Melbourne, the first of its kind in all of Australia. His research explores how meditation and mindfulness can support well-being and also can help with conditions like anxiety and depression. Nicholas is also a lifelong skeptic, a stance that I really appreciate, and he's brought important critiques to the field of contemplative science as it's evolved over the years. Our conversation spans both the science and practice of meditation, We start with the story of how an existential crisis led Nicholas to take meditation seriously. And from there, we get into nuancing the narrative around mindfulness, both how we define and measure it and how we study its impact on the brain. Nicholas also highlights the need to examine effects of meditation outside of the individual who's meditating, looking at more relational and even societal impacts. He then shares insights from his own life after this last year when he committed to meditating almost every day. And we talk about the freedom that comes from letting go and how skills learned on the cushion can transfer meaningfully into our daily lives. We then get into the process of deconstructing the self, a common theme here on the show, using meditation and mindfulness for anxiety and depression, getting out of your head and into your body, and quite a few other topics. If you're interested to learn more about Nicholas's work, please do check out the show notes for this episode, and definitely take a look at the new Contemplative Studies Center that he directs. It looks like they're up to some really great things there. I also just want to lift up the importance of critiques like Nicholas brings to any ongoing scientific endeavor, It's a crucial part of the process to keep examining the complexities of this work and to not let ourselves get caught up in the simplified narrative that can sometimes feel so easy to slip into. So deep appreciation to Nicholas and to all those who keep shining a light on how we might do this work better. All right, with that, it is my pleasure to share this conversation with Nicholas Van Dam. I'm here with Nicholas Van Dam. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I often like to start with people's just personal stories. Can you share a bit about how you first got interested in mindfulness and how you've ended up doing the work that you do? Yeah, so I'll give you the, the medium length version because there's a, there's a very short version and there's a much longer version. I, I presume <laughs> nobody wants to hear the long version. Um, <laughs> And the short version is too short. Um, so I, it was about 2004, 2005, I was an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin. So that was, I believe, right about the time that Mind and Life was really taking off. That's um, right. And I believe that might have been the year as well that Richie Davidson was on the cover of Time magazine. 
So I took a course. I was a, I was doing my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin, as I said, and I took a course on stress and health. And as part of that course, we did the mindfulness-based stress reduction program. So that was the first time I got exposed to mindfulness. And while working there, I had opportunity to sort of meet and chat with Richie Davidson a couple of times as well. And I, I thought it was all very interesting. Um, the, the thing I like to say and the thing I like to emphasize for me is that a lot of these stories are very linear. Mine is not. Uh -huh. um, so I sort of got exposed to it. I thought it was cool. I had some wonderful naps. Um, and <laughs> I, then, I then went off to medical school and thought, okay, I'm done with all of that. You know, I don't need any of the mindfulness of meditation. And I, about two thirds of the way into my first year of medical school, I had this major existential crisis. And I... Mm. My, my partner at the time broke up with me and kind of life as I knew it just didn't make sense. And so I quit medical school and um, was trying to sort of figure out how what, what I wanted to do with my life and what would make sense for me. And that was when I really got into it. I sort of happened to kind of see some of my old books and um, I started reading them feverishly and sort of started reading a lot of books about Buddhism and philosophy and mindfulness. And that's really when I started to re-engage. And at that point, you know, after about, you know, six months to a year of sort of really starting to read and practice and get involved, that's when I really decided I wanted to go back to, to graduate school uh, in clinical psychology with a focus on meditation-based and mindfulness-based interventions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's that's how this all really got started. It was in that, that sort of the throes of an existential crisis, not knowing what to do with my life, kind of early 20s. Uh, trying to figure out what all of it means and, and coming out of that going, okay, well, there's got to be some way of making sense of things. And, and that's, you know, mindfulness and meditation was really a big part of me making sense of things. Mm. Can you say a little more about how mindfulness helped you during that time? Yeah, it was um, a big part of it was for me. I mean, I was raised in a very sort of um, conservative um, Christian tradition. So I was raised in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And um, you know, the way in which I was raised was without sort of questioning things. So there was a real emphasis sort of on, you know, you accept what you're told and you don't ask questions. And, you know, I was never one who's not inclined to, to ask questions. You know, I'm inquisitive by nature. I'm skeptical by nature. So, you know, I was the student who always was asking the complicated philosophical questions that the the school teachers were sort of irritated by you know no, no, they're sort of saying you're wasting the, the other students time you're <laughs> you're asking difficult questions stop being so difficult so I guess really for me it was kind of the the ability to kind of fundamentally question you know to sit mm. with with deep unknowing deep sort of agnosticism as it were and I was really inspired by the writings of Thich Nhat Hanh and, and Stephen Batchelor and a number of others um, and Tara Brock as well, and sort of, you know, these ideas of radical acceptance and um, just just deeply being okay with uncertainty, being okay with not knowing the answer. And that was something that was just totally foreign to me. Um, this idea that, you know, everything wasn't planned, that there, there wasn't a clear, clean-cut answer to every question you had, and that there wasn't a way forward for, for every problem that you would face, that it was actually just about living your way into the question, so to speak, and just kind of sitting with whatever came up and arise. So that that was a, the, the big part of it for me was sort of trying to, to live the questions that I had and to find my way into the answers. And I think as part of that also really to sort of explore my values and, and what I wanted for myself in my life. And what I realized, I think, is that a big, a big part of my life was very much focused on um, 
you know, traditional, I guess, old school American values, you know, consumerism, mm. capitalism, um, success, you know, um, making a name for myself. And uh, I sort of increasingly recognize that a lot of those things, you know, while they can be helpful, they can also be quite harmful. Yeah, I, I imagine we might get into some of that as we go along. Um, it's interesting that you say you were always one to ask the the deep and complicated questions and you had the skeptical mind because I the first thing I think of you in relation to this field is having kind of this critical, really important critical voice about how the research is unfolding and and how it's being um, taken up in the public and all that. So I'd love to talk a little bit with you about your experiences there. In my mind, you're best known or your, you know, the biggest impact paper is uh, the Mind the Hype paper from 2017. Mm -hmm. So this was a, a paper that you joined up with a pretty large group of researchers in the field to kind of push back on the media narrative and the hype that had been accumulating about um, mindfulness practice. I'm wondering, can you take us through a little bit of your experience as the field was evolving and as the media was picking this up and some of the um, difficulties you saw arising and some of the points that you made in that paper? Yeah, so look, it, it, it was an interesting process um, that, that, you know, was, was spearheaded by a number of people. I mean, it, some of the conversations that, and some of the themes that came out in that paper were, were a result of conversations that a number of, of us, uh, those of us on the, on the article, co-authors, um, as well as a number of others had been kind of having on the sidelines of mind and life events and, um, you know, in various other kind of contemplative studies areas for, for a number of years. And those conversations kind of in, in started in earnest in 2013. So Mind and Life actually sponsored us to get together and, and Mariaka van Vucht put together uh, the kind of the group and got us all together. And so we kind of formally started to discuss that. And there were a lot, we, we really intentionally tried to, to bring a lot of people from a lot of different areas to ensure that we were widely and broadly representing different views. And I mean, the fact that it started in 2013 and didn't really get out until late 2017, 2018, just tells you how difficult a process it was to actually right. really get everyone to some point of consensus. Mm. And we, we it's, it's not that we didn't all agree. It's sort of just that we weren't quite sure what the message should be. Um, we weren't quite sure what the tone should be. And I guess fundamentally, one of our concerns was that we all thought, and I think we all still believe that there's incredible promise in mindfulness and meditation and that these practices have this kind of transformational potential for, for well-being and humanity and the planet. But a number of us were quite concerned about the messaging and, and how um, mindfulness and meditation were being marketed and, and the way in which the, the practices were being talked about, um, both by researchers, academics, and in the media, how the science, I guess, was being interpreted, and to some extent, sort of, you know, concerns about lack of representation of certain areas or nuance, I guess, in some of the stories in the headlines. So we we really decided at the end to kind of tackle three main issues. Um, the first was sort of this idea of what is mindfulness, um, which is a very complicated topic. Um, the second was what, what do we know from the perspective of applications of mindfulness and meditation to clinical problems? So, you know, as it's been applied to uh, issues of mental illness and and other medical conditions. And then the final was really the work and the approaches to looking at how mindfulness and meditation impact the brain. And we decided on these 
three areas because that seems to be kind of the way in which mindfulness and meditation are talked about most popularly, you know, so my, my sense, and I often sort of think of this as like the holy triad, you know, like when you hear someone sort of talk about how well mindfulness and meditation can benefit them or benefit individuals, you the kind of the, the things you hear first are, oh, it's a, you know, 2,500 year old, 2,600 year old tradition. Um, and therefore, if it's been around for that long, you know, there must be something to it. And so that, that sort of plays into this, well, what is mindfulness? What is meditation question? Mm. And if, if you push people a little bit on that, you know, like you raise questions like, do you think anyone in the present day context is actually practicing in the same way that they did 2,600 years ago? Right. People say, oh, no, no, well, all right, fine, forget that. Let's talk now about all the wonderful clinical trials that are out there supporting how many people this helps with various medical conditions and issues that, you know, traditional medicine has failed. Um, and so then, then the next point becomes, okay, let's talk about those. You know, yes, there is some really promising evidence, but as has been pointed out a few times, you know, I think most notably um, a paper by Sona Demidian and, and Zindel Siegel in 2015, we're not as far as I think we would like to be and as some people would suggest we are in terms of those studies. So we haven't done as many well-controlled studies where we actually have active good control groups comparing mindfulness or meditation to um, to something traditional like cognitive behavioral therapy or antidepressant medications or things that mm -hmm. we know kind of work. Um, so, you know, we then would say, well, the results are probably not as robust as we would want them to be if we were going to start to say mindfulness or meditation on a public health level or so that, you know, everybody should be using that as a frontline treatment. And so again, then the conversation evolves, right? The typical conversation goes, okay, fine, forget about that. Let's talk <laughs> about the changes to the brain. And so, you know, there we would say, well, there's similar issues. You know, the results are really interesting and really promising, as you yourself know. Um, but one of the huge issues, I think, is that, and, and this is acknowledged again readily in the literature, but I mean, the real start or the way that many academics and researchers in, with interest in mindfulness meditation, where they first went was to look at monastics. They went to look at Buddhist monks and nuns. And that made a lot of sense, you know, as Richie Davidson or Tanya Singer would say, you know, if there's nothing going on in the brains of people who have been practicing for 30, 40, 50 years, <laughs> then we're wasting our time. So it's a great starting point because, you know, it really gives us a sense of, well, what is the potential? What is the capacity with these practices? However, we've continued to look at monks and nuns who have been practicing in caves and, you know, living at the foothills of the Himalayas. And so who is it that is the appropriate comparison? You know, if you want to know whether meditation is the thing that really makes the difference, one of the things that you have to do is you have to control for all the other lifestyle factors that are associated with it. And when you think about a monk, you know, you think about the fact that they typically live in a solitary or a semi-solitary setting. They, they live with others, often, you know, eating maybe one or two meals a day. Their lifestyle is often incredibly modest. They're committed to a particular idea, um, you know, a particular goal of a way of life. They often own what, maybe one or two pairs of robes and maybe one or two pairs of sandals and maybe, you know, a few books. Um, so that's not exactly like what your average American or indeed global citizen of the world really looks like. And, you know, so it's really difficult then to find anybody that you would say, well, if we look at them head to head, kind of doing the same thing in an MRI scanner, or, you know, we look at their brain activities, you know, there's all these other factors that may be driving that. So it's, it's really tricky then to say, well, it's meditation alone that is driving why 
the, the monk's or nun's brain activity looks different. So you take Mathieu Ricard as an example. You know, why is he the happiest man alive? Why does he show <laughs> such interesting brain? I mean, Mathieu is an incredibly inspiring and incredibly unusual man, right? I mean, yeah. I, I know few other people who have PhDs in molecular biology have, you know, parents who were as influential as his were, you know, having been, I mean, I believe his, his father was, you know, quite famous and a philosopher. His mother, I think, was a famous artist. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he spent decades meditating, a translator for His Holiness the Dalai Lama, knows science incredibly well, has worked closely with some of the most preeminent scientists on the planet. So there's not a whole lot of other people out there like him. So to say that he's the happiest man alive and say that it's only due to meditation is a bit of a stretch. And I don't think that anyone, you know, at least in the scientific end, has ever been trying to say, you know, that Mathieu is a template for the rest of us. But sometimes in the media, that's the implication that you get from interpreting the results of the studies that, oh, yeah, you know, Mathieu has, you know, had these amazing results and looks this way. And my kind of, you know, comedic response to that is, you know, and you too, if you have a Nobel laureate mentor and a father who is also, you know, a famous philosopher and a mother who's a famous artist, if you work closely with His Holiness the Dalai Lama for 30 years and practice on your own in the foothills of the, the Himalayan mountains for, you know, as Mathieu does, you know, you too can have happiness. Um, <laughs> right. So look, those are the three kind of themes that we really felt needed to be addressed. And I guess going back then to those three, I mean, the, the first question and issue was, well, what is, what is mindfulness and, and what does it mean in the context of meditation? And I don't think we have an answer yet. I think, you know, my, mm. my view and my perspective, and I think to some extent the view of the group is that mindfulness is a convenient placeholder. It's a convenient umbrella term that represents mm. lots of different things. And John Kabat-Zinn has confirmed that himself, that it was never meant to be the main thing or the only thing, I guess, we focused on in the context of mindfulness-based practices. It, it's one thing. So the kind of attention training, awareness training capacities are one part of a much bigger story, a much bigger picture of how we ought to be doing these practices and what their real potential is. And that, that was part of the issue that we raised, you know, that asking someone whether or not they think they're mindful versus training someone for 20 minutes in a single session versus having someone do an eight-week course versus having someone commit to a lifetime of meditation practice in, the, in a mindfulness-based tradition is very, very different. And it's incredibly hard, you know, and often people equate those things. They often sort of talk right. about dispositional mindfulness or they talk about how people talk about their own present momentness or awareness or uh, attention to kind of the present as, as being equivalent to those short trainings, as being equivalent to multi-week or even month-long programs, as being equivalent to what a committed monk or nun might do. And I think the real issue that we wanted to flag there was that they're not the same. And we have to be careful. We have to use caution when we, we try to equate these things. And we really have to, just when we think about and consider this term mindfulness, we have to use more nuance. We have to recognize that essentially that, that's not a one-size-fits-all term, right? It is, it is representing a lot of different things. And look, my personal recommendation at the end of the day is that we kind of move away from the term mm. because I actually think there's so much baggage now associated with it and it means something different to everyone that you talk to. And as a result, I think it just is confusing. When we, get, when we have a conversation, you know, I may say, I love mindfulness and you may say, I agree, I love it. <laughs> I may be talking about you know, meditation and the insight tradition, you may be talking about your use of a popular app. Right. What might be some better ways to talk about it? 
the things that get me the most excited and the areas that I'm wanting to move the most to are its impact beyond the individual. So I think mm. we've really focused a lot in research on the individual. We really focused on how does it change that person per their report? And I think there's been some really fascinating studies that have been done, not, not enough of them in my opinion, but there's been some really fascinating studies that have been done looking at indirect effects. And by indirect, what I mean is that somebody was trained in the context of learning meditation or learning mindfulness. And then rather than just focusing on that person and saying, do you feel better? D is your life going better? Are you happier? They then looked at the people around them. So two wonderful examples I can think of. There was a study that Nirbay Singh did looking at care workers in elderly care facilities. And they trained the care workers in mindfulness and looked at sort of a comparison control group. And rather than sort of asking the care workers whether they felt better, they looked at the people they were caring for. Mm. And they found that the people they were looking after were doing better. They, they, had ha they had happier lives. They were functioning better. Similarly, there was a study in 2007 that was done in, um, in a, by a group in Germany where they trained uh, therapists in training in either Zen meditation or relaxation. And so they, it was a randomized trial. And rather than, again, looking at the therapist trainees, they looked at their clients. They looked at their patients. And what they found was that the patients or the clients of the therapist who got trained in Zen meditation recovered faster and did better than those who just got relaxation training. So to me, that's where it gets really cool. Like it's results like that where I think you really start to go, okay, there's really something to this. It's not just people saying they feel more mindful. It's not just people saying they feel more present. It's actually hard evidence that it's changing people's lives. And, and as a result, you know, it's changing their, their lives kind of inward out. It's influencing the people around them. Right. And, you know, I think even personally, you know, I've, I've really kind of in the context of COVID have recommitted to a personal practice. And the first person I asked whether there was any noticeable difference was my partner. You know, I said, essentially, <laughs> right. look, I've been doing this now for, you know, over a year. Am I any different? Like, do you notice anything? Am I less irritable? Am I nicer? Am I kinder? And that to me was, you know, the real was the real point where I went, okay, when she said, yes, actually, I've noticed lots of changes about you. You know, I've noticed changes in the way that you interact with me on a daily basis. I've noticed changes in the way that you interact with, with our son. That's kind of when I really went, okay, you know, now I feel like something's actually happened. actually wanted to talk to you about that because I saw on your Twitter that you were engaging in this committed to kind of every day or almost every day practice for at least the last year. And so I just wanted to hear some of your experiences with that. Like, what drew you to commit to this? And how was it? What were some of the challenges and lessons learned and all of that? Yeah, so I was part of a documentary. There was a, a, a documentary filmmaker, Shannon Harvey, who's based mm. here in Australia, who made a film called My Year of Living Mindfully. And so I was I was part of that film and worked with her a bit to kind of understand her experiences. And so part of that inspired me to think, okay, 
you know, her and I had spent some time talking about doing a large scale experiment um, to kind of look at that, try to inspire people to do something similar, to take on their own kind of year or six months or three months or one week or whatever they wanted mm -hmm. and kind of try to see effects. Unfortunately, we couldn't get funding support at the time. Uh. But I'd always, I guess, a, a bit of backstory about kind of my personal meditation practice. I've always been concerned, and I guess this goes back to my skeptical nature. I've always been a little bit concerned that if I get too committed to my meditation practice, if I get too involved in it, that that may interfere with my ability to be a good scientist. Mm. And so... I actually, because I think that these practices are so powerful and have such great potential, I wanted to be able to be a, a researcher. I wanted to be the person who could actually study it in a way that was as unbiased as it possibly could be. And that may sound silly to some people, but really, honestly, I wanted to be able to study it in a way and be able to sort of say, look, this either does or it doesn't work. And I wanted to do that without bringing my personal biases to bear on that. I didn't, if I was a committed Buddhist meditator, my, my feeling was that I might just be saying it works because it works for me personally. Yeah, that's been a conversation in the field too, right? Is like most of the people who study this are pretty committed practitioners. And so I've talked with some other folks on the podcast about does bias creep in and, you know, it's a challenge. So um, that's interesting. Yeah, that you were kind of holding back. And I have friends who have told me that they've left research, who have started off kind of in academia as, as researchers and really with a big focus on meditation, but they've decided that they didn't want to study meditation as their main focus of their research work for exactly this reason. Um, it wasn't so much that they felt they were biased, although that was a bit of it, but it was actually more of a you know, they believe in it too strongly personally. And, you know, if it didn't show the effects they thought it should, they were getting really frustrated. And they were feeling like it was undermining both their science, but also their practice. So I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people about this, as I'm sure many people have over the years. Um, ultimately, where, where the difference came in for me and why I decided to do this was that I was at a bit of a crossroads in, in my own life and in my own practice. And we talked about the, the Mind the Hype paper and I mean, for, for me, and as we approach that as a group, there I, a number of us, I think, were very optimistic. I wasn't sure where I sat, you know, in terms of with respect to the field and what was going to happen and, and how people would receive that article. I wasn't mm. sure whether people would just say, okay, it's another skeptic who wants to diminish the promising findings of meditation. You know, he's a crank. Don't listen to him. Or, you know... There may be some truths to it, there may not be, or, you know, kind of the opposite of that, which is, yes, there are some really important comments in here that we need to address as a field. And so when we kind of put that out, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to wait and see what the response is. And depending on the response, that's going to determine kind of some next steps for me in terms of how much time I spend researching this and how much I commit to this in terms of, a, of my main work in academia. And to some extent, to my surprise, the, the, the community was just overwhelmingly positive. Right. You know, people really felt like these were important things we needed to talk about, incorporate, address. We needed to do more and do better, particularly because these practices have so much promise, you know, for so many people. Um, so that was a big turning point for me of going, okay, look, there's a lot of potential in the community and there's a lot of recognition of the importance of recognizing some of our own biases and thinking about ways forward in this research mm. and this work. And so I guess as I sort of was involved with the documentary that I mentioned, 
it started to raise questions for me personally about, okay, well, what is the potential of this practice? You know, I've read all these stories, but from a, from a personal level. So what is the potential? What can this actually do for you? And so I actually decided to do a year of near daily practice. And I kind of followed the instructions or guidance, you know, that are laid out in mindfulness-based stress reduction of giving myself at least one day to kind of the day off. It's good behavior change principles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of said, you know, if I, if I at least give myself one day where I don't have to do it, you know, then it'll be easier to actually implement it, which mm-hmm. I'll, I'm happy to talk about sort of other strategies I use because it, it, there, were, there were a lot of challenges. Um, but honestly, I really took it on as a let's just see what happens. I honestly do not know. You know, people obviously talk about all kinds of incredible out there, you know, almost paranormal type experiences. People talk a lot about, you know, massive improvements in well-being. People talk about unpleasant experiences, um, unwanted experiences. So I really just thought, let's just see what happens. Um, and I made it public because I wanted to be accountable. I wanted, mm. I wanted people to know what I was doing, and I wanted a way of holding myself to that. So, so I kicked it off. I started sort of slowly with kind of just revisiting some of the practices I've used in the past. Um, I've used apps kind of as a way of really supporting myself and being able to track the practice. I've also used apps as a way sort of, of just exploring new practices. During the course of the year, I did a lot of reading again of different books, different teachers talking about different approaches to meditation, particularly within various secular and Buddhist traditions. And... I started off slow with, you know, on the order of 10, 15 minutes a day, and then slowly, gradually worked my way up. Um, At the peak, I was probably practicing, you know, 30 to 45 minutes a day, Mm. um, most days of the week. Um, And then, you know, kind of actually gradually sort of pulled it back just to to about 15 to 20 minutes, just as a function of sort of, um, you know, availability of time and and Mm -hmm. what day-to-day life actually looks like. So it was a really interesting experience. When I first started, it was an incredible struggle just to do it. Yeah, I'm often reminded of—I forget exactly who says it—but you know the idea of you need sort of the principles of how to get a practice started. Of just thinking, just set up a space, set the intention to just sit, um, not even to practice. Just set the intention, just to like go to the cushion, go to wherever you practice, take the time just to get into the posture. Um, and, you know, the, the trick kind of being, well, once you're there, you might as well do it, right? Like, <laughs> right, you're already right. sitting down, you're, you know, you've already, you've bothered to get out the timer or the bells or your blanket or whatever, you might as well do it for at least five minutes. Right. Um, and that, that worked quite well, you know, and carving out as well a time, a regular time for me, sort of, you know, in the morning, um, particularly during the pandemic. I mean, look, that was the other thing I haven't mentioned that um, it was also a very personal decision. I needed something personally. You know, I was really yeah. struggling as many were in the context of COVID and yeah. I needed something to, to reflect. I needed a space um, to not have responsibilities. I needed a space just to kind of be me, whatever that meant, um, mm-hmm. to, to kind of really temporarily be free to renew, to, to explore without the various sort of things associated with my academic role, my um, role as a partner, my role as a father. Um, I, I just needed a bit of space and time for me to kind of, and not, not, I don't mean that in a selfish way. I just really did need some, um, I needed a way to renew. So early on, I think it, it, as I think it often is, it was, it was really quite refreshing. Um, I mean, it was irritating and difficult, but it, it was, there were many things about it that were refreshing. I would say three months in is when things I think 
probably started to get really interesting. I mean, I think early on, you know, I noticed a lot of really interesting changes. I noticed, I felt like I was more positive. I felt like I was a bit more balanced. I felt like I was a bit gentler and kinder in my interactions with others. But as my practice deepened, and as I sort of became more regular and I extended it, I guess I noticed more about what I didn't know. And I noticed more, mm -hmm. you know, the initial kind of ideas of, oh, you know, wow, I'm, you know, and I've, I've had periods of my life prior to this where I practice intensively. Um, and, and this has been my experience in the past as well. You know, early on, it feels like, oh, wow, this is amazing. You know, I've unlocked all these new abilities, all these, all this new potential. And then you kind of go a little further and you go, oh, that was just the tip of the iceberg. Right. You know, like there's so much more underneath that. Um, and so as I progressed, you know, the, lots of new things came up, um, including difficult experiences and emotions. You know, you know I would have mm. days where I'd sit down and I would practice and I would just feel incredibly sad. Um, mm. And, you know, sometimes it would be related to a memory that would pop to mind from childhood. Sometimes it would be, you know, a, a global issue that just really distressed me. Um, Sometimes it would just be me sort of feeling like I'm not doing enough for my family. But, you know, there were these sort of various things that would pop up and it, it made it tricky. It made it hard. Um, and, and there were days where I sort of had to say, OK, I, I need the next day off of meditation because I need time to process or cope with that experience. Mm. Um, but I did also turn at that point to various teachers, you know, in various ways and asked questions and sort of read books and tried to explore okay, wh what do you do with this? You know, when these things come up, mm. what, do you, what do you do with this experience? And many teachers sort of encouraged, you know, loving kindness or metta practices or, you know, cultivation practices, as well as things like self-acceptance, self-compassion, you know, go mm -hmm. easy on yourself. Um, probing the depths of your mind is, is a tricky enterprise and lots of things will come up. And yeah. as these things come up, um, you need to have strategies for how to deal with them. And you can't just keep pushing through. You have to have... You have to give yourself time and space to cope. And so I had a couple of real breakthrough moments between the three to nine month period where there were a couple of things. I mean, for me, particularly, I mentioned I was raised in, in a Christian tradition. I, I was reading some kind of Christian texts and, and those sort of triggered some really intense negative experiences for me, mm -hmm. just memories from childhood and, you know, kind of negative experiences that I'd had growing up. And it wasn't till I was sort of prepared to sit with that and understand what those experiences were, what they meant to how I thought about myself and to kind of find a way of letting go of that, to find a way of um, just letting those be. I mean, that those experiences are part of my story of me, of who I am, but they don't define me forever. Um, and it was when I got to the point where I kind of could recognize that at least in the space of meditation, I could put that down temporarily, that I realized I could do that more generally. Um, and I realized that with other things as well, um, like I could start to put down temporarily the stress or the strain associated with my job, or I could mm -hmm. put down temporarily the high pressure and expectations I put on myself as a father or as a partner or as a son or as a friend. And it's only, you know, 20, 30 minutes, but what you realize is the freedom that there is in that, that you can just kind of put it down. And it's not to say, I often describe it as like, it's, it's like you're, if you're traveling, you know, like, and, and I look, I, I now live in Australia. I've moved here from, from America. Um, it's a long trip. And so <laughs> the analogy I use is, you know, if you're traveling internationally, you're often tired, you're saddled with baggage, 
you know, you're exhausted. You know, you, you probably haven't brushed your teeth in a while. You're, you know, you, you haven't changed your socks in ages. And there's a lot of things about the experience that's just really unpleasant. And it's kind of like in the midst of that, being able to just find a pleasant bench and just sit down and like, you know, remove some of the baggage, maybe change mm. the socks, take them off, just sit somewhere in the fresh air and just take some time. And it's not that you stay there, right? You've got another flight to get to or you've got somewhere to go. It's that for however long you need, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you're just there in that moment. You're nothing. You know, you're, you're not you, you're not a father, you're not a parent, you're not an academic. Mm. You just get to be in that space and just sit with whatever comes. And so that for me was a huge kind of realization and breakthrough. And then it started to extend outward. I sort of thought, okay, if I can let go in the meditation context, I can also do that outside of it. You've brought up a lot of interesting things in that um, in your journey, just in this last year of practice, that I'd love to dig into a little more. One is, you know, just the last thing you were talking about, this process or realization of the capacity to let go, you know, the baggage, I guess, that we're carrying, learning that on the cushion, as it were, like during practice, and then translating that into regular life in, in other settings, how powerful that can be. Is there, this is kind of a strange question, but but I know exactly the experience that you're talking about. And I'm trying to find a way to put words to like how you actually do that, like how you let go. Can you say more about that? Yeah, it's, look, it's a challenge. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that I know more than, you know, the many excellent, exceptional teachers out there who... Um, focus their teachings on this. I mean, Martina Batchelor has, has written, you know, a book titled Letting Go, and it's quite wonderful. And, you know, there are many um, very much more experienced teachers uh, and academics and, you know, clinicians than I that can describe these things. Uh, I can speak from my experience, though, which is to say you start small. I think when we talk about this, and I think I have often noticed myself in conversations about this idea of letting go, it feels a bit similar to the way we talk about leaning in. Um, mm. Or you know, getting more involved, and and we, I feel like it often, it can often come off as a bit like a bit flippant, or a bit like, oh, it's so easy, you just let go. That's all you right. have to do is you just let go. But it's it's like it's the one of the hardest things it's in the world. It's not easy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's incredibly difficult. And so, where I started was really small. You know, I thought, okay, if I can just be with the breath. If I can just get a few seconds even of just essentially saying, um, it's just me here in the moment with the breath, you know, and if I can sort of just sit here and I can just experience what I experience and I can all the kind of thoughts, all the aches, the pains, the, the, the kind of prongs from various areas in my life that pop to mind as you sit in meditation, um, if I can just kind of acknowledge them and recognize them and go, okay, you know, thanks for the offering. Thanks for your, your <laughs> effort to try to help me as it were. 
and kind of go, you know, I'll get back to you later. You know, like it's again, I use I use the analogy of putting down the bags because I view it very similarly. Yeah. And I think what was really helpful for me in, in that analogy is because I think for a lot of people, there's something about this kind of letting go or often even in kind of notions of radical acceptance. This idea that, oh, but but you're a parent, you know, like or you're mm. you're a partner or you're a friend or but that's your job. Like you can't just let go of those things. You don't just accept that you're not as good a parent as you want to be. And I think that's misunderstanding it a bit, right? You're not saying that you're not going to pick those titles up again. You're not saying that you're not going to pick those bags up again. The way I describe it sort of is you're putting the bags down temporarily and you're probably going to pick them back up again. But even if it's just for a moment that you get to put those bags down, it gives you the experience of pause. It gives you the experience or the recognition experientially, internally, that you can do it. And that gives you a little bit more space to then decide going forward, how many bags do you want to carry? Mm. How many labels, titles, responsibilities do you want to take with you in your day-to-day life as you go about doing what you do? And so that little space, that little tiny fragment, that moment of relief where you were letting go grows. And so as you practice, as you're kind of on the cushion, as you said, doing this, the awareness increases that if I can do this for a moment, I can do it for two. If I can do it for two, I can do it for three. And the experience just grows and grows. And that's not to say that you ever get to the point where you go, okay, for the rest of my life, I'm not going to hold this bag or I'm not going to have this title or I'm not going to hold myself responsible for these things or expect more of myself um, because it's a slow, gradual process. But it does make it easier and it does something clicks inside and you go, oh, I, I can actually do that. And it's not a it's not intellectual knowledge. There, there's no mm. it's not in your head that you go, I can do it. It's, it's somewhere in your heart, in your being that you go, I can do this. I know I can do this. And you actually believe it. Um, and in, in, in having this kind of visceral experience, it, it makes all the difference. Um, and then you draw on that. You draw on that in your everyday life. Um, you know, th- th- I think that formal practice serves as the basis um, and, you know, it, it, you begin to notice yourself, at least I begin to notice myself in my day-to-day life going, what bags am I carrying right now in the way that I'm relating, you know, particularly in my family. I think we've all had a lot of experience sort of being kind of stuck at home um, in the past year. And, you know, so I started to notice more and more the way in which I might react to something my son would say or do. And I would go, you know what? I just put on him something that was not his. I reacted in a way that I that was irritable or snappish because I was stressed about something from work. And that's mm-hmm. not his thing, you know? Why am I, you know, I'm conflating the roles. And so, and then I was able to go, okay, look, let's just take a breath, put down or let go of that role, again, momentarily, so that I can mm-hmm. focus on the role that I want to hold in that moment. Yeah, so a lot of what you're talking about is kind of letting go of these identities. And somewhere underneath that is making me think of, letting go of kind of self-construct maybe more broadly. Do you want to say anything about that from your experience? Yeah. So look, a big part of this whole process, I mean, from the very beginning for me has been about self, you know, who Mm -hmm. am I, what am I about? Um, And I, and I very much started from the position of thinking that there is something, there is some, continuous kind of everlasting thing that is me. You know, I I was raised Mm. obviously in the Christian tradition to think that there is a soul. Right. 
And so that was very important. There was something, I thought there was something about me that would kind of continue in some way permanently. Um, and at various points, I kind of came to the realization that that just doesn't work for me. That idea of self doesn't work for me anymore. It doesn't fit with how I view the world or the experiences I've had or what I've learned. And I came to view ideas of the self. There's, there's a, 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 an essay by Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, that's called The Self as the Center of Narrative Gravity. And I'm not mm. necessarily promoting or espousing the article per se as much as I am just the title. I love that <laughs> right. idea as the self as the center of narrative gravity. Right. In other words, who you are is a collection of stories you tell yourself about yourself, mm -hmm. right? Who you are essentially is this idea you have that's based on all the experiences you have and you're writing it. You know, you, you're deciding who you are. And so in coming to realize that and kind of coming to live that and in, in coming to recognize kind of ideas that permeate Buddhism, you know, ideas of impermanence, you know, nothing lasts forever, everything changes. I came to realize that for me, this idea of self, it's a, it's a narrative. It's a story. Um, mm. The story continues, but it changes, you know, that, that at different, different historical events, different memories get adjusted, get tweaked as I go in time. And you can actually, you can change how you remember certain things. You can be a little bit more positive about things that have happened earlier in your life. Um, you know, one of the things we know from research on depression and anxiety, which is a really great example, which is one of the areas that I, I study, we know that people with depression tend to be overly negative when they recall events. And we, we know where there's a similar um, issue along with people with anxiety, you know, they tend to be overly negative in terms of how they interpret their experiences. And so the reality is we often think, oh, but that's exactly what happened to me. I remember it perfectly. That is what happened. Mm. You know, that person walking across the other side of the street, that friend that I waved at, they were ignoring me. I can't believe that they had the gall to just not wave back. And, you know, when you can kind of look at it in a little more detail, you go, well, maybe they just didn't notice me. Right. Maybe they had headphones in, you know, maybe <laughs> they were on their phone and, you know, and you go, well, maybe the, the offense that I took at that, maybe it it wasn't as personal as I thought it was. And I guess that's kind of the conclusion I've come to is, you know, um, it's not about you. You know, at the end of the day, very little is actually about you. Um, yeah. There's so much more going on in the world and in so many other people's lives. And that's actually quite a relief. Yeah. It's refreshing yeah. when you go, oh, okay, like, I, I'm not that big a deal. I'm not that important. Um, it gives you kind of the freedom to go, okay, well, who do I want to be? What do I want to do? How do I want to help? Um, yeah, so look, for me, that, that, that was really important. And, and that, uh, that recognition kind of of, well, what is, what is this self that I cling to? Um, and and how, do I, how do I want to define it or redefine it, as it were? That, that was a, a huge kind of, that's been a huge catalyst for me going forward. And for me thinking about the work that I want to do. You mentioned that um, you work a lot uh, in clinical diagnoses like depression, anxiety, and bringing mindfulness into these spaces. What has been your experience working with folks who struggle with depression and anxiety or other um, psychiatric disorders and bringing mindfulness and maybe some of the things that we've just been talking about, about these ideas of, um, or abilities to let go and kind of deconstruct the self. Do you see that as a piece of what's helpful for them? I think it's, it's quite variable. I think we have to be really careful about 
who we encourage to explore the exactly these kinds of issues. You know, I think there there are threads of Buddhist modernism. Um, you know, the current interpretations of what Buddhism is, or, or threads of meditation, or threads of mindfulness that do really push for this exploration and deconstruction of the sense of self. And for some, that can be an incredibly transformative and positive experience. I think, though, that you know there are particular um, conditions or psychiatric disorders where the fundamental issue is the person's sense of self. They don't have an established mm. sense of self. And I often think of um, Mark Epstein, the psychiatrist and, and someone who, you know, a, a friend of mine in life, who has talked about this idea that before you go pulling threads at the kind of ball of yarn that is the ego, you have to establish the ego. So before you can kind of explore what the self is, before you can kind of dissect it, you have to have a good sense of it. And if you don't have a good sense of it to begin with, it's probably not a good idea to go kind of pulling at those threads. And so there are mm. conditions, I think, in particular, people who um, have things like schizophrenia um, or who suffer from, you know, uh, disorders to do with a sense of identity or, um, you know, have histories of trauma where they're not sure how those traumatic experiences fit within their sense of who they are. I think it's really important just to be really cautious in how we approach that. Now, on the other hand, I think there, there are a lot of disorders for which I think this can be incredibly powerful and helpful. For me, I think at the end of the day, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. You know, there's right. no one practice that will help everyone. And certainly the type of practice that has worked for me, um, I doubt would be helpful for everyone. But I have seen, I think in my experience, the type of person who is especially stuck in their head you know, and, and I think there's a, there's certainly a lot of us. I'm guessing there's a lot of us that are into meditation, that are interested in you know interest, introspection, looking inside. Are exactly those types of people. Um, not yeah. all of us, but I think a lot of us. Um, and I think these practices can be especially helpful for those people. Um, you know, when you're when you're often in your head, when you're often sort of trying to remember the past and think about the future, you're trying to project forward. You're exploring or simulating. Um, all the possible outcomes uh, of something you might do or say, or you're recalling a past experience that you had and you're kind of going, okay, well, what if I had done this instead of that? What if I had gone there instead of here? Um, and I think for those people, recognizing some of these issues um, around how the self is constructed and recognizing that, as I said, I think at the end of the day, maybe it doesn't really matter. You know, um, I mean, all choices matter, but not everything has as much weight, I think, sometimes as, as, as what we assign to it. You know, we think, we think certain things mean a lot more than maybe they do. And so to elaborate, I guess, a practice that I've used in clinical practice with certain patients, particularly patients that experience a lot of rumination or worry, is I've tried to get them to let the breath breathe itself. Mm. And this is not a practice that I do with them in session one. It's not a practice I do with them even in session six. It's often like I've been seeing them for quite some time. They trust me. They're ready to do it. They're ready to jump in. It's also something that's incredibly hard to do. But mm -hmm. it's a just watch the breath. Try not to control it. Just sit back. Your body will do it for you. And I've seen in a lot of clients and I've seen for myself, it's a really profound experience when you're someone who thinks I have to control everything about my life, I have to, I have mm. to be on top of everything. I have to predict all the things that could happen. I have to remember all the bad events, that the, the bad choices I've made, the bad things that have happened so that they don't happen again. When you just observe that breath breathing itself, something just shifts. It's kind of like 
um, John Kabat-Zinn's turn, the, the orthogonal rotation in consciousness. You know, you mm-hmm. just go, oh, my body can do that on its own. <laughs> and it's just this little release of going, oh, that's one thing I don't have to worry about. You know, I don't have to be on top of this. I don't have to control this. And that one little recognition or shift can lead to many, many more. And so I think that's a great example where in clinical practice, there is a lot of power and potential to this. The other thing really is for those of us who are in our head a lot of the time, we rarely inhabit our actual bodies. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, Evan Thompson has been massively influential in my thinking in many ways and his, you know, recognition or discussion of how important for us to recognize that we're embodied beings. But we rarely actually do inhabit our bodies. And so I think for those of us who are in our heads a lot of the time, actually spending more time in our physical body and recognizing the value that that has and the important information that's there in our bodies can be not only incredibly important to better understanding how we're feeling, but it also kind of grounds us and makes us more present in our day-to-day life. And I think I found that a lot of clients get a lot of benefit from that. So you uh, are the director of a new center for contemplative studies at University of Melbourne, right? Yes. So this is a newly established center, and it's the first in all of Australia around contemplative work. Do you want to share about um, your vision for that and the goals? Yeah, look, it was a very interesting process. I guess, as I mentioned, you know, in, in my approach to my own research, I kind of was waiting to see what happened with the Mind the Hype paper. And as that turned really positive, and as I committed myself to more practice, I realized more and more that this was something that I really wanted to turn my efforts to kind of full time. And so since I moved here to Australia about four years ago, I've been exploring kind of the scene in the Australian context and sort of trying to understand how meditation and mindfulness works here. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the connection to Asia um, and the fact that Australia is sort of geographically located much more closely to Asia than you mm. know many of the centers of similar names or varieties of names in, in North America and Europe are. And so I sort of started having discussions and reached out with a few people. Um, and after about probably six to nine months of discussions, um, we were very fortunate that the former CEO of a company called Redbubble, um, Mr. Martin Hosking, incredibly generously gave us $10 million to set up the center. And the interesting thing, I guess, for me and thinking about, you know, Martin's incredible vision and kind of trust in me is that it, it really was just a big vision. It was a big goal, a big idea. And the things that we really want to do, the things that we're really focused on are trying to clarify some misconceptions about what meditation and mindfulness look like, trying to make these practices more accessible for people more broadly finding ways essentially to help people figure out, well, what can they do? How can they do it? And how do I get to them? So to really kind of decrease, I guess, the barriers that are there to kind of just trying out different types of practice. Um, So our commitment really is to authentic practices. There is a preponderance of practices that are in the world. You know, there's tons of apps, there's lots of teachers, there's lots of programs you can do. There are some people that are out there just to make money. 
And we're mm-hmm. really eager to promote those practices that have as their goal the betterment of humanity, the betterment of the world, the you know helping people to live their best lives, helping people and the world to be a better place. So that's a mm-hmm. fundamental thing that we're committed to. We're also really committed to recognizing the context and traditions from which these practices come. Um, so Australia, you know, in contrast to say North America and particularly the U.S., where I grew up, is is largely a secular country. And so in many ways, the contributions of Buddhists, Christians, um, and other religious traditions in particular have largely been left out of the discussions with respect to meditation and contemplative practices. Mm. So that was something that was really important for for me and for, for the center is that there's a lot of expertise there. There's people that have been practicing these traditions for a long time. So it's not to say we'll defer to them and we will sort of say that they are the experts, right. but we have to respect them, acknowledge them and work with them. And in Australia in particular, we have one of the oldest civilizations on the planet. You know, the indigenous populations in Australia have all of this incredible knowledge and wisdom and ways of living with the planet that are, are really, I think, relative to what they know are largely unexplored. And so we really want greater connection with these traditions and understanding how these traditions have used these practices to, to keep the world rotating, as it were. Uh, and then finally, we, we, we really want to promote empirical rigor in the way that sort of, you know, hopefully the mind the hype paper has raised. And um, we really want, as we work with people, as we work with communities of practice, as we work with teachers, we want them to be open to feedback. We want them to recognize that this, and, and really, truly, this is a two-way street. You know, they get to have influence on how we think about these practices. Maybe we can put aside some of our preconceived ideas, even if just momentarily, about whether rebirth or karma or whatever is real. And maybe we can ask of them the same, that momentarily they can put aside some of their beliefs or ideas about karma, rebirth, um, you know, the soul, just while we're conversing, just to see if we can find common ground and, and actually accrue or accumulate good empirical evidence. Because at the end of the day, one of the most important things, I think, is as these practices become more widespread, as we see mindfulness and meditation in more and more areas of society, it's one thing to say on an individual level that people could benefit from the practice. And if someone chooses to meditate in whatever tradition or whatever way they want, I have no problem with that. But if we're going to start recommending it as a primary healthcare intervention, if, we're, if it's going to be a thing that companies require, if it's mm. going to be something that is going to be in the military, in schools, we need rigorous, robust evidence that says this is an important evidence-backed approach to resolving some of our problems or, or giving um, better lives to our children, to ourselves, to our world. That's fantastic. Congratulations on the center, it sounds like. Um... You're off to an amazing start, and we'll definitely put links in the show notes for you know that work and, and your work in general. Is there anything you wanted to say um, before we wrap or to chat about, or do you have any takeaways kind of from your work? Um, it, it might just be worth it just to say one thing to situate myself a bit. Um, so I think you know many people do, and as you mentioned, many people do think of me, I think the general perception of me, both in the field and potentially in the media, is as a skeptic you know, is as someone who is a disbeliever or who sort of is a, is a, you know, a pain, like I, I poke holes in things, <laughs> um, you know, try to undermine people's, I guess I, what I really want to, to be known is that I, I actually do that out of love. Like it's not, I'm actually, I mean, I know it may sound weird, um, but 
when I when I moved to New York, I really found a home. And when I, I started to have conversations early on, I'm not sure if listeners will know of Paul Grossman. Um, Paul Grossman is is, is lived in, in in Europe and, and is Jewish by by background. Um, and Paul and I worked together for a number of years on a couple of projects. And when I started chatting to Paul, and when I moved to New York City, I encountered this sort of Jubu tradition, the Jewish Buddhists, and I encountered this idea of the Talmudic tussle, which is sort of this idea that you can kind of go at each other ideologically. You can disagree. You know, you can kind of say, I don't agree with you. These are all the reasons. I think you're missing the point here. Um, I think your evidence isn't strong enough. And then you can walk away from that and you can go and have a beer and you can be friends. Mm -hmm. And so when I encountered that, I really found what felt like a kind of home for me. Um, I found like that's that's where I'm coming from. It's it's essentially when I when I critique these ideas, when I critique these works, it's not because I want to tear them down or I want people not to do them. It's because I actually think that there's so much promise in these practices for so many people. I don't think it's going to fix all of our problems as people, as individuals, as a, as a society. But I think there's an incredible amount of potential. And I think in order to achieve that potential, we have to do the absolute best work that we can. I'm concerned that if we don't do our best work, there are people out there who just are uninterested or who think that this is kind of a lot of fluff. And so if we don't do the best work, we won't be able to convince them. And, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, we need to do our best work basically to find out what is the real capacity of, of these practices? How can we best help people? And for whom and in what way will these practices help? And so that's where I'm coming from. And I just want to make that really clear that my approach is one where I do think that these can be enormously beneficial, but I think we have to do better in the way that we explore them. And that also entails exploring how they work. You know, just because a practice doesn't show changes in the brain, that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't work. You know, maybe we're looking in the wrong place. You know, as I emphasized um, in part of our discussion, I think we haven't looked enough around the person, outside of the person. We haven't looked mm. enough at the impact of these practices on society, on our relationship to others and to the planet. And I think that's somewhere we need to start looking. Yeah, thanks so much for all of that. I know that I personally have really appreciated your voice as a critical voice in the field. I think it's so essential, you know, we're doing this kind of work as scientists to always be in this dynamic back and forth of re-examining and like pushing into and picking apart you know what how is this can we do this the best way so keep doing what you're doing I think it's it's been so helpful for the field and um, it's really critical well thank you it's, it's good to hear that great well thank you so much for uh, for spending the time today it's been really great to to have you on the show it's been a pleasure This episode was supported in part by Inspira Health. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. Music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. If something in this conversation sparked insight for you, we'd love to know about it. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. There, you can also support our work, including this podcast. This podcast.